All right, church, if we could start making our way to our seats for the preaching of God's Word. As you make your way to your seat, we're in Isaiah chapter 1. Isaiah chapter 1. We'll be reading from verses 1 through 9. In Isaiah 66, it says, Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? All these things, things my hand has made, and so all these things can, came to be, declares the Lord. And this is what I want you to listen to, church. But this is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. So church, let's stand for the reading of God's word. And may we come humbly to God's word this morning with an eagerness to obey it. Isaiah 1, beginning in verse 1. Church, this is God's word. Amen. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's crib. But Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Why will you still be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick and the whole heart faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there is no soundness in it, but bruises and sores and raw wounds. They are, <clears throat> they are not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. Your country lies desolate. Your cities are burned with fire in, the very, in your very presence. Foreigners devour your land. It is desolate as overthrown by foreigners, and the daughter of Zion, Zion is left like a booth in a vineyard, like a lodge in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. If the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Church, this is God's word. You may be seated. There were some appropriate almost angst at the end just you could just hear it in a few in the room of just oh there at the end um, title this morning is when the best of times is the worst of times subtitled rejecting a holy king uh, I want to remind you that uh, this morning is your last day to uh 
for affirmations. Um, and so we have paper and a basket over here in regards to uh, potentially us adding another elder, that being Josiah Durham. So please, if you have not yet, and thank you, so many already have um, written out or emailed their affirmations. So thank you. You continue to do that today. Today is our last day, however. Let's be honest, when we're perhaps thinking about reading a book in the Bible, most of us don't land in Isaiah. Um, and when reading through, if you've ever sought to read through the Bible in a year, most of us come to Isaiah and just get lost in the woods. Uh, a lot of us maybe start out and, and just either quit or just press through um, and just wonder what in the world's going on here. Uh, what we believe at Trinity is that all of God's word is inspired, breathed out by God. Thank you, Peter. There you are. Thank you. Amen. A strong amen to all of God's word is inspired. It is authoritative. It is sufficient. It is clear. And we thank God for it. Um, but there are certain types of genre that is maybe a little bit more difficult. And so we want to benefit from, from this book, Isaiah. Before we get to the book of Isaiah, I referenced last week the book of A Tale of Two Cities. I want to read to you the first paragraph because I just gave you the first sentence last time. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. This is fantastic writing, by the way. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. It was the epic of belief. It was the epic of incredulity. It was the season of light. It was the season of darkness. It was the spring of hope. It was the winter of despair. We had everything before us. We had nothing before us. We were all going direct to heaven. We were all going direct to the other way. In short, the period was so far like the present period that some of the noisiest authorities insisted on its being received for good or for evil in the superlative degree of comparison only. I love that. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. You know, uh, to, to so much the degree, that kind of depends on perspective. By the way, I haven't forgotten to pray. We're going to get there. It was the best of times, really, is the perspective of the people who sharing with you last week that Uzziah is the king when this book starts out. And under the rulership of Uzziah as king, is the time, it was the best of times. It was peace and comfort, if your perspective is sinful man. But from the perspective of God, it was the worst of times. It was the best of times in the sense of, wow, we have blessing and prosperity and look, peace and comfort and look at how, look at how we're taken care of. And yet it was in that prosperity of the people that they removed God. They kept God at a distance from the perspective of God. It was the worst of times. 
The very people of God are rejecting him and turning themselves to false gods. It was the best of times. It was the absolute worst of times. Things are not good here. We're just nine verses into this large book. The people of God have turned away from God. The people who could recite their family heritage, their history, their, they are the people of Abraham. They are the people, the children of God. The faithfulness of God could be recited throughout their um, family history. And now those people are turning to false gods. And they turn to those false gods to be their hope their deliverance, their, their future. Isaiah is the gospel. Be reminded. It's a helpful word to hear about Jesus with his disciples on the road to Emmaus as he unpacks for them Moses and the prophets, letting them, telling them all the things they need to know about who Christ through the Old Testament. Isaiah is the gospel as we shared last week, a lot of people refer to this book as the fifth gospel, but it's a different kind of gospel and that this gospel is foretelling the gospel. This gospel is looking to the Savior, the Messiah who's to come. And in doing so, he is unpacking gospel truths that we will hear this morning. He is unpacking the truth that God is absolute perfection in his holiness and man is utterly corrupt in his sinfulness there exists so great a chasm between the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man man is completely hopeless outside of God but the message of Messiah is I am sending uh, the message of Isaiah is that I am sending a Messiah to come and to bridge the gap that exists between the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man. I am sending a Savior, a Redeemer, to save sinful man and reconcile us to a holy God. The state of the people of God is utterly corrupt to the core. That's these verses. But Rick finished reading in, Isaiah, in verse number nine. Some versions say, unless the Lord. Some versions say, if the Lord. And to that end, we pray. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. It is life and breath to us. Lord, thank you for in the past any who would be here and would say, I am among the redeemed people of God. I have repented of my sins and I, am, I have um, placed my faith, my trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness. Any of us who could say that this morning would say of the word, it has cut me deeply at different times. We thank you for your spirit's work in your word to cut us deeply because it's only when we see the depth of our sinfulness do we ever see 
the glory of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And this morning we've come to a difficult text, not, not a technically difficult text, church, but a hard text, a painful text. Lord, in our culture, in our day, probably as in every day, Lord, we want to exalt ourselves. We want to feel good about ourselves. We want to prop ourselves up. Lord, this, this text lays us low. For your glory and your splendor, your marvelous majesty. Lord, we pray, allow your word to have its intended effect on our souls. Revive us where we need to be revived. Restore us where we need to be restored. Save us where we need to be saved. Have mercy on your church today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Point one is the courtroom. The courtroom, verse number two. If you weren't here last week, we just preached verse number one last week. You can go and listen to that. Um, you might read it and go, wow, is, there's really nothing there. There's actually a lot there. So I would encourage you to go back and listen to that on our website. Verse two, hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. These verses actually have a setting of, we might call it a courtroom drama. These verses would have to the original hearers, the people that Isaiah was engaged with when this was taking place and the original readers of this um, prophetic book of Isaiah, they would have heard these words, hear, O heaven, and give earth, give ear, O earth, and it would have immediately triggered something in them. They've heard that before. That's, that's Old Testament speak. That is a regular sentiment. And it would immediately call to their attention. God is a covenant-making God. And God had made his covenant with his people many years prior. And when he did so, he called on heaven and earth to witness his covenant. And so in the courtroom drama, the judge and the persecuting attorney is the Lord himself. We read in verse one, the vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem, the the. The, the idea there of which he saw is the Lord is speaking through Isaiah. The, what he sees is what the Lord is showing him to see. And the Lord here is the judge and the persecuting, prosecuting attorney. And the defendants are God's people then and now. And the witnesses that are summoned is heaven and earth because Heaven and earth sees us as we are. Heaven and earth are summoned into the courtroom. They are, they are often summoned in the Old Testament. Sometimes they are summoned as witnesses for the prosecution, and sometimes they are summoned for the absolute proclamation and display of the glory of God. But whenever summoned, heaven and earth is always summoned on the side of the Lord, the Creator. God. Moses himself called on heaven and earth to witness the covenant, that covenant of 
Here are the Lord's blessings. Here are the Lord's curses. We've preached on covenant before. We will probably preach, unpack what covenant is more so as we move through this book. I'm sure Josiah's unpacking covenant in his equip class right now. Um, it's, it's a meaningful picture, but we don't have time to unpack all of that this morning. Here's what you need to know. These are a people who have broken covenant with God. And heaven and earth is called to listen in and witness against them. So there's a courtroom. Number two is there's three accusations. Verses two through four contain three accusations that are leveled against the people. And those accusations come in, a, in contrast. The first accusation that's shown to us through contrast is verse two, the rebellious people. The second half of verse two, hear, O heavens, give earth, ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. There's your contrast. There's, it's the child that I've reared. reared. It's the child that I've, I've brought up. It's the child that I've cared for. It's the child that I've brought up from its birth. Here's the contrast. They have rebelled against me. What parent isn't aware of that contrast? We have perhaps leveled that against our own children. The mother says, to the teenager, do you know how many times I changed your diaper? Like, do you know, like when you were sick, who took care of you? Do you know how I reared you and raised you? Do you know the sacrifices of a mother, child, right? Like we've brought that to our children. If you're, if you're a child in the room, um, you'll bring that to your children one day too. Do you know the sacrifice? Do you know how when I was sick, I took care of you anyways? The sacrifices made, the meals prepared. We have the ability to level that at our own children and then we also have the ability to turn around and be that same child to the Lord. that they were even called the children of God is stunning. What have these people done to deserve being called children in the first place? That we would be here this morning and even be called children of God Stunning mercy and grace. Only by divine choice. Only by divine initiative. They're not called the children of God. And we're not called the children of God because we're all that. It's not because we have been godly. It's not because we have been righteous. No, actually, to be called a child of God is to be called out of unrighteousness. 
It's not random that they're called children of God. It's not an accidental relationship that they're called the children of God. They are the children of God, which speaks of the character of God and the activity of God in their lives. It speaks of the sovereignty of God, the providence of God, that, 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 that just those words shouts back to us as children of God, providence, sovereignty, divine initiative, fatherly care. That is just stunning two sinners. But the children of God who were raised and nurtured by God are now rejecting God. The recipients of his parental care now reject that care. The child has rebelled against the father. Strong words. Acts, that's accusation number one through contrast. Accusation number two through contrast is verse three. The ox knows its owner, the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Translated, the people of God are worse than ignorant animals. These two animals in particular in ancient Near East are considered to be dumb and stubborn animals. And the people of God are being contrasted to be dumber and stupider than the animals. Oxes know better. They know its owner. Donkeys. They know it's master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Animals know better. That word know is a, it's a common word in covenant. Um, what's the word I'm looking for? In, in, in covenant speak, that word know is common. It's a covenant term. Let's put it that way. The people knew the terms of the covenant. They knew they have understanding because they know of God's activity. They know of God's character. They've got family history that they can point to and say, we know of the Lord's activity in our lives. We know of the Lord's character in our lives. You know what? We have ancestors who rebelled and rejected God in that desert. And we, we, we recount those things. We remember those things. We know they, they went to Sunday school, if you will. They know. They know the terms of the covenant. They knew because God was active when they were slaves in Egypt. They knew their family had been 
slaves in Egypt and they knew of the deliverance of the Lord and the, the radical, miraculous deliverance of the Lord. They knew of the plagues. They knew of Moses's activity. They knew how the Lord, um, well, that Passover has been celebrated since. They knew of God's activity at Sinai. They knew covenant. We could probably call them church kids. They grew up on this stuff. They cut their teeth on this stuff. They were church kids. And they rejected him. They rejected covenant relationship. Exodus 6 says this. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. You got to hear this, this, uh, what Kim was referencing, it's biblical theology speech here, this, this land of, they were, they were to be a people of land. We are a people of land. You understand that? We are still a people of land. Our land is the eternal land of milk and honey. This is just a glimmer of what God has for the people of God. Our land is in heaven. They lived as sojourners. I wonder anywhere we could point to where we hear those, a term like sojourners. Maybe we might want to go to 1 Peter. Moreover, I have heard the, the groaning of the people of Israel whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians and I will deliver you from slavery to them. That's, that's our language. This is what we know. He has delivered us from slavery, not from the Egyptians, but from sin and death. And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm. And I will, with great acts of judgment, I will take you to be my people. Kind of acts of judgment did God accomplish that through? Judgment on his son, on our behalf. I will take you to be my people and I will be your God and you shall know. Oxes know, donkeys know, Israel does not know. You shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. You shall know that the Lord your God has brought you out from under the burdens of your sin through the judgment of his son. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob, and I will give to you for a possession. I am the Lord. This verse three, know, this understand, this knowing did not come out of nowhere. It came out of an experience they had had with the Lord. God had shown himself to be the faithful God of the covenant throughout their family history. It came out of God's character. It came out of his activity. God is a God of steadfast Love. Oxes and donkeys, stupid animals. 
animals that we might say are so stubborn they wouldn't know better. They, they are put in this contrast with Israel. They know better than the thinking being, the created being, the redeemed people of God. There's your contrast. Why? Because rebellion makes us stupid. Seen it. Lived it. You know what? Like, sin isn't reasonable, is it? It's just not rational. It's not rational. We look at this and we, and we go, I don't, I don't know about you, but I, I read these verses and I go, what is wrong with these people? What are they thinking? Look at how stupid they're being. They know covenant. They know the activity and the character of God. How could they rebel against his love? How could they keep God at arm's length distance? How could they turn to false gods to become their hope? They were a people of privilege who had been raised, reared by God. God is their father. It should have led them to a lifetime of worship. They should have been singing, right? To the end of my breath, I will live for you and worship you. I give myself to you, my God and King. But instead they rebelled and they played the harlot and they rejected God's love and they turned away from their faithful God. And church, they are us. This is not some distant people, some distant message. Isaiah was certainly written for them. And Isaiah is most certainly written for us. It's why we come on a Sunday morning and we gather together to worship our God. It's why we open our Bibles in the middle of the week and we dig in that God might reveal himself to us yet again. It's why we cry out for, God, give me wisdom. It's why we show up to community group and we talk and we build lives together to engage and talk about these things in our lives. It's why we need each other. Because they are us. Accusation through contrast number three, verse number four. Listen to each word here. Ah, sinful nation. A people laden with iniquity. Offspring of evildoers. Children who deal corruptly. Listen to this indictment. They have forsaken the Lord they have despised, despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. I don't know, is there anything we can add to that? Is there any language that we could bring to that to give us a better sense? The contrast comes in 
laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly, forsaken the Lord, despised, here's your contrast, the Holy One of Israel. Listen, we need, the people of God today need, the church needs, and the lost person needs an utter, complete sense, a comprehensive sense of our absolute corrupted nature, condemned as sinners before a holy God. For the redeemed, the more you and I understand how utterly corrupt we were prior to salvation, for the believer, to see how comprehensive our sinfulness was prior to Christ, without Christ's salvation, how utterly incapable we are of salvation. Because when we see how utterly incapable, how completely comprehensive our sinfulness was, all the more glorious the Savior, Jesus Christ, who comes to redeem fallen man. All the more all the more worshipful, right? It becomes the fuel for the worshiper of God. It stirs the sinner into repentance again and again. It inflames the mind to glory in his name. It ignites the conscience to cry out to the holy king, God forgive me. It triggers the activity of evangelism to a lost world. It opens the mouth to exclaim of his wonder and splendor and his majesty. Oh, what mercy to sinful man. Oh, what grace. Oh, what forgiveness. Praise be to our God. He has seen the wretchedness of my sin and he sent Jesus to come to die on that cross to bring about my salvation. Feel the tone of these verses. Hear the angst, the despair. It's a lament over sinful man. You see, without the utter ruin of verse four, there is no need for the gospel. Look, we're not pretty good. Things are not kind of okay. Absolute corruptness to the core. Anything less than that, you don't need much of a Jesus. You might want a little bit of Jesus, you might want a simple fix, a simple Savior one of your own creation. But these verses, these lay us low. We're utterly corrupt. Now, some might be here this morning and you might not agree. Thank you for being here. 
Stick with me. Because friends, that is why Jesus came. It's why he came. He didn't come to pretty good people. He didn't come to us to be a little bit of a savior for little bit sinners. Listen, if, if all we need is a little bit of savior, why a bloody cross of the son of God? Think, think with me about how utterly corrupt we once were. And if you're not a Christian this morning, if you've not repented and trusted in him for the forgiveness of sins, I must tell you, you live right now these verses. You are utterly corrupt. Without this, the gospel isn't much of a gospel. Frankly, without these verses, the gospel isn't all that impressive. It's not that glorious. The reason that the good news is the gospel, that it is the good news, is because we are so utterly corrupt. It's not pretty good news to pretty good people. It's not a watered down news, adulterated news, meaningless news. It's not news that props up our moral feeling about ourselves, that we're, no, the cross of Christ lays us low. My sinfulness required that death and that sacrifice. It encourages the the wickedness, it it exposes the wickedness of self-salvation, the gospel does. People say, don't tell me I'm a bad person. Don't judge me. I don't judge you. God's word judges you. And we need this church. We need this as believers. We need this as unbelievers. It's a hard word. I recognize that. We need a sense of the completeness of our utter complete depravity in our sin because we think too lightly about our sin. Our issue is not that we're thinking too harshly about our sin. Our issue is that we think too lightly. about. Our issue is we want to excuse ourselves. We want to think that sin, not such a big deal. We think that we're inherently pretty good with some minor flaws. Shouldn't Isaiah just maybe take a chill pill? Like, what is wrong with this prophet? Relax. Sounds like he's saying that we're not basically good. Yeah, we read it right. We are through and through not good. Why would I belabor that? Well, it's the essence of salvation. For the unbeliever, you need to know that or else you don't need a savior. And you can continue to deceive yourself to save yourself. And for the believer... Because it's the fuel to worship. It's the glory to God moment. It fuels our repentance. We like to shrink down our sinfulness. We want to think that it's not as bad as Isaiah portrays it to be. 
Because if we can just shrink down God's holiness, if he's not perfect in his holiness, that makes me feel quite a bit better. And if I can kind of prop up my sinfulness, maybe, maybe I can make God less than perfect. And maybe I can make myself just pretty good. And maybe we can kind of bridge that gap a little bit in our minds. But that's not what Isaiah is doing. And that's not what the gospel does. The gospel comes proclaiming that man is utterly, completely, helplessly, hopelessly sinful to the core. And God in his perfection and his holiness came to redeem sinful man. We don't need just a little fixing up. Our need is radical. It requires a radical savior because our state of sin is radical. Just look real quick, verse nine. Unless the Lord of hosts. We'll get to that more in a few minutes, but what a, what a moment of hope in this sinful beatdown. We should have become like Sodom and become like Gomorrah, unless the Lord. You see, if we can shrink that gap between God's holiness and our sinfulness, we can feel better about ourselves without any repentance needed. Without any faith needed. We don't really need God. I mean, we're gonna, we, we want a little bit of God for when we're really in trouble. We wanna make sure we keep God in our back pocket when we get into a bind, but we don't really need God if we're not utterly, completely corrupt to the core. We don't wanna get too radical about this Christianity thing. We wanna think that we make little mistakes. We wanna say nobody's perfect. I hope the big guy upstairs understands. Excuse my French. We tell ourselves that what we need is some self-esteem. Self-esteem, self becomes my savior. If I could just think better about myself, somehow that'll lift me out of the muddy pit that we're in. Friends, we're not in need of more self-esteem. Sorry to say, we have a lot of it. We don't need to stand before the mirror and tell ourselves how wonderful and good we are. We need to stand before the mirror and see the wretchedness of our sinfulness and how wonderful and good God has been to us. We don't need to prop ourselves up with self-esteem. We need to assess that we're actually worse than we think. We are sinners in need of a savior. And the savior is not the person in the mirror. The savior is not my view, my estimation of myself. It's not my self-esteem. That's not what's gonna lift me out of the pit. We need to look outside of ourselves. We need to look up away from ourselves for our salvation. And so we have the ability to talk ourselves into feeling good about ourselves when things are not good. It's not a self-esteem gospel where self becomes king, where self becomes the savior, where self becomes the one who is adored. If I can just convince myself of how valuable I am, then I can feel good and experience a salvation of sorts. It's a deception 
We need an honest dose of truth. What we actually need is to see that we are worse than we think. Because it's not until we see how utterly corrupt that we are that we will then rightly turn to a savior who died for our sins to not just fix us, but to make us new. To not just kind of repair us up a little bit, but to give us absolute new life in him. Left to ourselves, church, we have no hope. And it's not until we grasp how utterly corrupt that we are that we can then understand the cross of Christ. That we can understand who Jesus is in his life and death and resurrection. What is redemption? What is reconciliation? What is it to live before a holy God? What is forgiveness? What is repentance? It's not until that we see these things that we will gather together on a Sunday morning and throw ourselves at his feet in worship of him. It's not until we see these things that we, we actually have the motivation that after long seasons of suffering, I mean, of serving, that we then go, oh, and I wanna serve my holy king. It's not until we see these things that we are inclined to, to give to the Lord, not out of a religious thing that we would do, but out of holy worship and glory to his name. You see, without sinfulness and holiness, holiness of God, sinfulness of man, we don't need grace. And we shrink the gospel down to something sizable, to in some way prop ourselves up. Number three is the appeal. Verse five. Why will you still be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The divine question is an opportunity for us to respond. Again, it's a lament. It's asking why? From the perspective of God, why? Why knowing that sin will lead you into foolishness? Why, why in the, the knowing of the covenant would you reject? Why would you be stubborn in your sin? Why continue to position yourself against the holy God? Why will you in your sinfulness keep hitting your head against the wall and keep me at arm's distance? Again, this isn't some distant message to some distant people, some many thousands of years ago. This is for us, church. It's for today. And so don't hold this message of this book at a distance. This, these nine verses, is grace to us. Why go down to the path of destruction? God is saying, return to the Lord he again is reminding them of the covenant. If they walk away from their protector, they will experience the consequences of breaking the covenant. And they did experience that. It's a warning from God through his prophet, Isaiah. Unless the Lord, verse nine. Feel this moment of hope. Do you feel the weight of it? We need to feel the weight of it. If the Lord of hosts, or unless the Lord of hosts, 
utter corruption now meets unless the Lord. Utter corruption, corrupt to the core, now meets if the Lord of hosts. That's Isaiah's gospel. God knows that a remnant out of this remnant will come. Out of this remnant of people, he says, if the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, guess what? He did. He left us a few survivors, and from the few survivors, the Messiah came. He appeals, and I'm appealing this morning. The gospel appeals to you this morning. Turn from your sin. Turn from keeping God at arm's distance. Turn from religious activity. Turn from this, I, I don't want to be too radical for Christ. Don't worry. None of us is being too radical for Christ. What a nonsensical idea. Turn from the religious activity. Turn to God-loving, God-serving, God-worshipping, God-speaking and declaring, spirit-invigorated pursuit of our God. He says the whole head is sick. This is verse five. And the whole heart is faint. Verse six, from the sole of the foot even to the head, there is no soundness in it, but bruises and sores and raw wounds. They are not pressed up, pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. It's just a picture of just the sickness. It's not that the four kings listed in verse one there. It's not that they were stupid men. They were probably qualified to some degree for the role that they held. They may have been brilliant military strategists, capable minds, powerful military, but that's not what makes the people healthy. They were sick, verses five and six, without help. They were a land, verse seven, Without defense, your country lies desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. In your very presence, foreigners devour your land. It is desolate as overthrown by foreigners. This is what forsaking the Lord brings to the people of God, the children of God. It leaves them helpless. Verse eight, and the daughter of Zion is left like a booth in a vineyard, like a lodge in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. What in the world is he talking about? A booth and a lodge. He's saying, it's like you're the transient people. You're the, you're the people who just, you don't have a dwelling place. You're living in a tent. All right, here's another contrast. You're living in a tent while your enemy prepares to besiege the city. You got no firm dwelling place, but your enemy is ready to absolutely annihilate you. You create this tent of sorts, constructed man's means of salvation, constructed, and it'll never stand against the vigilance of your enemy. To forsake the Lord is to embrace judgment. Feel the weight of the stubbornness of Israel. He's redeemed them from slavery. He's made covenant with them. They reject him. Stubborn in their resistance against him. And then even in the judgment, even in their stubbornness, 
Did I mention there's a verse 9? Unless the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we should have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. You know what this is? This is hope in the face of the mess. Oh, Isaiah is going to unpack that thought a lot more, especially later in the book. But in the mercy of God, he drops us a little dose of it here early in the book. First 39 chapters of Isaiah is for the most part judgment. It's not until we get to 40, the last chapters of Isaiah, that we start to see him unpack the hope. But here it is. It's right here in black and white. If the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, praise be to God, you're here this morning because he did keep a few survivors. And through that line, the Messiah will come and he will redeem not just these people as they look forward to the Messiah, but he redeems us as we look back to the Messiah, Jesus Christ, our Savior. God preserved a remnant of people. Are you repentant? Are you responding are you broken about your rebellion against the Lord? Are you broken about your stubbornness, how we keep him at arm's length? Are you broken that you are that child who is spurned against the father's care? If you are, repentance is a beautiful word for us this morning. Because repentance puts you among that remnant of people that he continues to keep even in our day. Isaiah would tell us, stop it, change your course, repent and return to God because forgiveness is available. Do you, church, believe that God takes his word seriously? Do, do you believe that I can just go on living the way that I want to live and just kind of keep a little bit of Jesus in my back pocket just in case I might need him one day? I know better because you're church kids and you went to Sunday school or you've seen the activity and the character of God and there will be consequences to our rejection and rebellion against God. Said last week, Isaiah writes to our head, our heart, and our hands. Our head, he's writing to create worshipers or our, our head, sorry. He's writing to build convictions, what you know to be true about our God. Our heart, meaning our affections, are to be stirred, that we are to be worshipers of what we know to be true. Our hands go, serve the Lord with gladness, work hard for him in his kingdom. He's seeking to change our head our hearts and our hands. And so the question for us this morning is who, what will you believe about this God? Who will you worship and what will you do as a result? Let's stand together. Oh God.